Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, and welcome back to ETFs for Beginners, where we swim against the investing riptide so that you don't need a lifesaver. And as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Anna Christina. Hello, Anna. Hi, Phil. How are you doing today? Very good, very good. We've got a guest right here in the studio with me. <laughs> There's actually two of us in the room together. So please tell us who we've got here. We've got Jamie Hanna, Deputy Head of Investments and Capital Markets at Vanek, Australia, Portfolio Manager and Trader, currently managing 28 exchange traded funds with more than $9 billion under management. So welcome, Jamie. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Nice to meet you, Anna and Phil. So let's kick it off. Let's hear a little bit about your background in finance. How did you get here? Well, it's a bit of a long story. It's been over 20 years, but um, I was actually quite fortunate. I was hired out of high school by PwC, which was the old Coopers and Lie brand back in the time. And they had a cadetship program where they would send us to university at night and, and work us to the bone during the day. So I started back there in the late 90s, but I always wanted to get into financial markets and when I was 19 years old, I actually picked up a traineeship as a stockbroker pre the 2000 tech bubble. So I started off working with a series of brokers who were in their mid 80s, who had unbelievable experience from basically from World War II right up until the year 2000, they'd been working in broking. So I learned a lot from them. But you know, after so many years of, I guess, retail broking, I really just wanted to go overseas and, and experience Wall Street and the big investment banks and trading floors. So I packed up my bags and moved to London. It was meant to be for you know an unspecified period of time, but I'm spending 10 years working in the investment banks in London and New York, in equities, shares and the like. Saw the GFC through from New York. So I saw the inside of a lot of what fell out in 2008 and 2009. But after you know a good number of years of that, I decided that uh, I would uh, move over to the ETF world, which was just setting up. A number of colleagues I knew from the investment banks were setting up a company called Source, which has now been taken over by Invesco, which is one of the largest ETF providers in the world. So in 2010, I started working for them and launched over 100 ETFs in Europe. And we raised about $20 billion in those 100 ETFs. But I'm Australian, and so I really just wanted to return to Australia. Over 10 years was enough. I was sick of the rainy weather. So I ended up coming back to Australia and working for Van Eck, which had just set up in Australia. They had four ETFs and a bit under $10 million in funds. So I came back, brought a lot of institutional and ETF knowledge to the business in Australia. And then, um, you know, eight years later, we have 30 ETFs and nearly $10 billion. So it's been quite a ride over the last 10 years or eight years in Australia. A ride indeed. Uh, before I ask a couple questions around Vanek's ETF portfolio and whatnot, I'd love to just hear a little bit more of how you have seen investing over this long, long uh, career of yours, right? Because you've been working with people who have seen many dips in the market and volatility. And I was just kind of curious from your own personal view what are some thoughts on on seeing a market for a longer period of time? Yes. So look, I think the original thing that really jumps to mind was in the year 2000 with the technology bubble. I was a junior 
trainee stockbroker, essentially. But my phone was ringing nonstop. This was obviously before the internet buying was really available. My phone was ringing nonstop. People just looking to buy whatever share they could. Oh, I hear Powertel is going up. I was just picking up my phone and people were just buying small little speculative companies. And what I actually saw is that the older brokers who I referred to, they weren't getting involved in this at all. They were essentially just saying, these are not good long-term investments. This is a bubble. They could see it. Everyone could see it. Everyone knew it was happening. But what I hadn't actually thought about at that stage is a lot of people made money. They made some serious money over a short period of time and they sold their investments. Hence, they locked in a capital gain. Now, the tech bubble burst in around April 2000. And during those next few months, people had lost money and they were unable to meet their tax liabilities on their capital gains because they kept on reinvesting their profits back into shares and then not thinking about the capital gains tax consequences at the end of the year. And so some people actually got in a lot of trouble with the tax department not being able to pay their tax bills. And that was the kind of the first kind of thing about structuring your finances in a way that you need to think about the bigger picture of your investment. But 08, the GFC, that was a completely different story. I was in New York I saw things firsthand in terms of how everything unraveled and things really unraveled in a way where it was a run. It wasn't that anything was particularly bad in the equity markets. It was the fact that people didn't have confidence in the underlying companies. So we had deals out with the likes of Merrill Lynch, who obviously got in a lot of trouble with Bear Stearns, who went under. And we were informed by our compliance and risk departments that they were no longer a valid company. We need to recall all business from them. And they were saying to us, hey, we have a profitable business. We're good. We're good. But I worked at one investment bank and there were multiple and everyone just kept on pulling all the money from them. So it created this rolling on event where things just kind of snowboard into a real crisis. And it was really driven by the CDOs and these, you know, default swaps, which were written over the back of these mortgages. But if you looked at any of the big trading floors that I worked on, you know, there were only like two or three or a handful of people in the back corner. I wouldn't have known anything about them up until that point in time. I was working in shares and, you know, equities. And this was quite a shock to me. And I'm on the institutional side of the business that these type of things could just blow up the whole market. So look, a lot of things happen. These volatility gets into the market, as we've seen since COVID started. And when volatility gets in here, it stays for a good amount of time. And we're seeing that now. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's always valuable to hear what happened in the past as people start to get nervous about what's currently happening in the market. And that's really something that younger investors need to understand because we all think of risk and we always think, you know, we'll hold firm if the market goes down. But unless you've lived through something like that, you don't know what it's like. You don't know the emotional side of things that's going to churn you up inside and stop you sleeping at night. Oh, no, that's absolutely true. And look, any investment, regardless of what we talk about today, should always be for the long term on the majority of your portfolio. Long-term wealth is all about long-term investment in good quality companies over a longer period of time. And from any perspective, you know, when we talk about thematics and things like that, they're really only a small portion of anyone's portfolio. And all the stock picking and things like that wear a lot of risk to it. And so, yes, you can make some good money out of it, but it should never be the backbone of any form of retirement planning or long-term planning that you should be involved in. So what was one of the biggest things that you learned or one of the main things that you learned from those 80-year-old brokers? They've obviously understood about investing for the long term. It was all about investing for the long term. They were very pro, at the time, a company called Campbell Brothers. 
which used to be essentially like an ETF. It was a lick, essentially. It was an investment company listed on the stock exchange. That was pre-kind of index tracking ETFs. And from their point of view, they were always looking at just building up a quality portfolio and sticking with it, not turning it over unless there was significant company information. And that has been the backbone of my personal investment philosophy. And a lot of people, if they ever ask for advice, I always advise them to go this route. And from leading into that, ETFs were kind of a natural progression because they're not something that you want to be churning on and off all the time. They're something that you can put in the portfolio and hold for a longer period of time over multiple cycles. And it really takes away a lot of that stock picking risk that you get from picking shares or an active manager picking shares. So, you know, a lot of the ETFs in general, they have a thing called a SPIVA scorecard, which is where they rate active managers against indices, against the index. And it's been shown that over a five to 10 year period, most active managers underperform the index. And not just that, that means that most individuals would also underperform as well. So, you know, it's good to have stock picking. And look, I certainly do it on the side as well. I mean, there's a lot of interest in it. You know, there's some fun in it as well. But, you know, the backbone of your portfolio should be in long-term investments. Speaking of long-term investments, let's hear a little bit about Vanex ETFs and what you have to offer. In Australia, we have 30 listed ETFs, and they're kind of split into a number of different areas. So we have Australian equity ETFs, which only have Australian shares in it. And we have a few sector ones like the REIT sector, resources, for example. But kind of the flagship of our Australian equities is our Australian equal weight ETF. Now, the Australian market, by the way it's set up, is that the biggest companies make the biggest weight in the index. And so for the S&P ASX 200, the top 10 companies make up 20, 30%. The top 20 make up nearly 50%. So our equal weight ETF equally weights about the top 90 companies in Australia and gives them all the same weight. So the likes of, you know, TPG Telecommunications has the same weight as ANZ Bank. And so we've just found that over the long term, that kind of performs better because you're not getting overweight banks and BHP as you would in Australia. So that's one element of the shares. We also then have our international suite of products. And that's kind of led by our quality ETF, which is our kind of our flagship broad-based international fund, which invests in all developed markets around the world. And then we then have a series of emerging markets. We have China. We have two China ETFs, including one mainland, investing in mainland companies. And we have a broad-based emerging markets fund. And then our alternative is we have fixed income ETFs, which invest in bonds, which investors are unable to invest in directly. So it's a broad suite to allow people to invest in you know, whatever they feel is suitable for their own portfolios. The video gaming and esports ETF, how big is the gaming sector? And I just wanted to preface this question by saying that there's been a cultural paradigm shift in terms of esports now being on the same par as traditional athletic competitions. So let's just talk, they're kind of two separate elements in a way. Mm. I mean, you have the video gaming or the gaming companies, and then you have esports. So if we just look, first of all, at gaming, there are over 3 billion gamers in the world. And they're people playing on platforms like Xboxes and Playstations. They're people playing on the computer, but they're also in the phone games. And that's really the largest growing group of this particular you know, 3 billion people. Phone, phone games. Phone games, absolutely. Oh, okay. yeah. And so at the moment, based on all the numbers, gaming as per year in 2020, numbers aren't quite official for 2021 yet, it generated $180 billion in revenue. Now, in terms of comparing that, the movie industry globally only generated $100 billion, and the music around 40 to $50 billion. So in essence, 
taking into account you know all the side elements of music and movies which might not be counted it's bigger than the movie and music industry combined on a global scale which is in a way something that people aren't really thinking about this actual size of the gaming market these days mm. so if you wanted me to expand on kind of like where this paradigm shift is i think you need to yeah. go back to video gaming in itself and it started in the late 70s in arcades where you know we used to have tournaments at the local parlors and things like that and then the atari came along and you were getting small little pieces but there weren't network people had to meet physically and so all the gaming was on a local basis in local little groups and teams and it wasn't really a commercial activity but from the advent of networking and the growth of the internet games as an industry has really taken off in a big way and that's because people can now sit at home and compete and play with friends. And certainly the younger generation are now using it as a social networking function as well, whereby they're able to log into a game, communicate with their friends, play games online, and actually hang out outside of school. And so from our perspective in terms of setting up this fund, it really is a gaming fund with esports being an element of the gaming because most of the gaming tournaments and most of the gaming elements in terms of the the element that involves that is kind of run by the underlying game manufacturer. So the gaming producer who publishes the game and advertises it, they want people to be involved in these tournaments. So they're the primary sponsor. And so most of the money comes through sponsorship of these tournaments. But in terms of being athletics and a sport, there's kind of two elements. One, a sport has competition. And two, to be good at it, you need to participate in a lot of training. And from that perspective, absolutely gaming ticks those boxes. The professionals, they're in a competition for prize money. And second of all, they spend an inordinate amount of time training to be a professional in this sport. Now, the element- Training's a funny word though, it isn't is, it? It is but training, it is, yes. It is, isn't it? it? Yeah. I mean, they are spending mm. whole days as teams and, and that literally go and train for eight hours a day and you know prepare for the next tournament to win money and from that perspective it is a sport what you're missing is kind of the actual physical element and that said one of the top gamers in the world recently had to resign because his hands he was getting issues with his hands so you know it's like a knee blowout for a lot of sportsmen you know this particular person had hand issues it might have been some form of arthritis from overuse of his hands playing games for so many hours a day so there are a lot of elements However, I agree, it is highly debatable that it is a sport, but it does have elements that would make up a sport. <laughs> and part of that is that it's, there's an audience for it as well. And yes. They're filling arenas. They are they? absolutely filling arenas. They have filled some of the biggest arenas in the US. They filled the one on the outskirts of Sydney here as well. And online, the viewing, certainly in the younger population under 25, is now greater than it is for what we would consider sports more people view esports and they do online than they do any form of normal sports. And a lot of that growth is actually coming out of Asia. And, you know, in Asia, a lot of people are living in a lot more in apartments, a lot of high-rise buildings. They don't have as much access to some of the open spaces that some of us take for granted. So it really has been able to really get a lot of steam up and a lot of leverage out of Asia recently. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And part of the philosophy of this ETF is that it is providing exposure to technology that's different from what you would normally have in a technology portfolio, your Microsofts and Apples and Googles and Alphabets and so forth. No, that's exactly right. And it's yeah. been structured that way. So it deliberately targets gaming companies. And it does that by saying, I mean, the mathematical models, but it looks at the revenue generated from a particular company and it has to generate more than 50% from gaming. So even though the likes of Microsoft, for example, produce a lot of games, they don't generate 50% of their revenue from gaming. So they're excluded from the index. So what it does is it creates kind of like a pure play laser focus on the actual gaming industry, as opposed to some of the more diverse companies involved in gaming. So what is the risk around this? To be honest, I'm completely blown away because I've never really thought of gaming and ETFs together. My partner is a gamer, watches and streams things all the time. So I don't know why this has not been something that I, I've uh, really thought deeply about. But how is the volatility around something around gaming? It's more volatile than a normal share. Absolutely. Because it's a limited kind of sector within the entertainment industry, within the communication sector. So you're really getting interactive home entertainment and some kind of manufacturers of gaming stuff like NVIDIA, for example, like the actual chip manufacturer who produce chips for gaming. So it's a very focused area. There's nothing offsetting a fall in that sector. So there's no diversification within the ETF itself. It gives you just the actual pure exposure to the gaming companies. And hence, any issues within gaming will impact the whole thing. And recently, there's been a few uh, bad news stories about the gaming industry in terms of the actual companies having a male-dominated kind of boys club um, excluding girls. And, and obviously, that type of publicity doesn't help the gaming sector. But outside of that, you are actually just getting an actual exposure to gaming and it can make up, you know, should you think about this as a long-term investment, you would put a small portion into the portfolio. And what I kind of didn't mention before is these are thematics and thematics are a theme. But in terms of the way we think about thematics, we would only launch a thematic which has a long-term structural impact. And what I mean, I'm talking that it is something that will span over 30 years or more. It's something which is changing. And if you think about gaming, it is growing and it has grown and it's not going away. I don't see anything unless the internet stops working. Gaming as an industry will continue to grow and will continue to attract new people. And obviously, if there's other thematics like clean energy, it's also a long-term structural change. So from that perspective, it's something that is going to continue. We believe it's not going away. It's not a short-term theme. This is something which is 30 years or more. And for clean energy, we know, I think everyone knows, as much as you want to say, oh, you know, the coal power is producing everything, in 50 years' time, that's not going to be the case at all. And we are going to be moving to a renewable and clean energy. So these types of themes have to be long-term supported by academics and supported by the real world. The great thing about these thematics is that they can complement your investing focus as well, especially if that's a space that you're interested in. So I know clean energy is one that a lot of people are talking about. What ETFs do you offer in this space? 
We have one actual clean energy ETF, CLNE. It's listed on the ASX. And actually, like our ESPO ETF, it targets the globally largest clean energy companies in the world. But it focuses on only 30 of them, which is a fair portion of the market. And from that 30, it obviously invests in clean energy such as hydro, such as wind power, such as solar, such as biomass, and anything associated with the production of that. And these clean energy companies are expected to be the leaders going forward over the next decades as the whole world transitions to more clean energy. So Vanek only really has two thematic ETFs? Yes, that's right. We only have two because as I was saying before, for a thematic it's really about a long-term structural change over about a 30-year period. So from that perspective, there aren't too many of those themes which we believe are good quality long-term of that period and that elk. You know, a lot of the other themes are more short-lived, highly volatile kind of trading investments. And themes and the thematics differ from sectors. So, I mean, we obviously have the A-REIT sector, we have the resources sector, and, you know, we have healthcare ETFs. So they're sector-driven as opposed to a theme to them. So there's a bit of a difference between a sector and a theme from our perspective and the way we look at it. And what I should actually highlight, and I didn't actually say, is that our esports and gaming isn't just listed in Australia. We also have the same ETF listed in Europe, and we have the same one listed in the USA, and it has over a billion dollars in it. So from a thematic play, it's kind of a global theme, which is certainly gaining ground as people you know, continue to watch and be involved in the gaming theme. We're going into a period of high traditional fossil fuel prices. Do you think that's having an impact on the development of renewables and uh, the clean energy sector? Yes, it absolutely has an impact on the clean energy sector because it obviously gives a better alternative to buying expensive fossil fuels, which are controlled by individual countries and controlled by cartels. Like OPEC. Like OPEC, for example. So what you have is you're regaining control of the underlying energy market for your own country or for your own local area. But at the same time, you're obviously doing something that's better for the environment. So it's a bit of a win-win for everyone involved in this sector outside of the oil-producing countries. But look, from the way it moves and the way it obviously interacts, the price of oil is always going to play an impact because oil and gas are still a long way off being phased out. So for now, people doing a comparison, it's obviously pushing the green energy and the clean energy agenda in a stronger light. And so it's just helping the transition, essentially. So when you were talking about clean energy, you mentioned that there's only about 30 companies that are included in that. How do they get included? And is there some kind of requirement that has to be taken into consideration? Yes, there is. So it's obviously on the back of the index. And the index has been developed by S&P, who obviously create the ASX 200. So they have essentially a team of people who identify clean energy companies. So a lot of companies who produce clean energy aren't 100% producing clean energy. They might be producing part coal or the like. So we have to analyze the companies that are the most clean energy driven companies. So a lot of these aren't companies that have big coal power with a little bit of green energy on the side. So we focus primarily on the biggest companies that are wholly focused on clean energy solutions and clean energy productions. So there isn't as many as you would think that have such a high rating. So we've just focused on globally the top 30. New ones absolutely can come in. At the moment, we've capped it at 30. But there is other clean energy companies which expand out the number of clean energy companies. But by expanding out the universe past this 30, you're getting a lot more of the companies that aren't as green. 
So the ones that don't produce as much clean energy as the top 30 do. So it's a bit of a way up in terms of where you strike a balance. And we've decided we'll focus primarily on the most liquid, largest global clean energy companies. Thanks for clarifying that because I find that so many people are interested in ESGs and how do they invest ethically, especially around clean energy. And they know that they're compromising when they're taking these broader, bigger ETFs. However, when you have a thematic that is offered in a specific space, you can actually state that it's all clean energy. And that's quite beneficial to someone who's looking for that specifically to complement their portfolio. Yep. No, absolutely. And that's the focus of it. 100%. What about the situation with the Ukraine war or the invasion of Ukraine by Russia? It seems that there's a lot of countries now who really have to bring their energy production back in-house because you'd mentioned the cartel before and Russia is one of the biggest players in this cartel. Are there any subtleties or nuances you're seeing in this at the moment? Well, initially, when the initial invasion took place and oil started pushing up, clean energy actually pushed up higher in price as a whole. But actually, that was a little bit short-lived. It's now starting to drift down as the broader market is drifting down and some of the results out of the technology companies and that are starting to not hit some targets. So it had a good rally and then it's pulled back. So the nuances are there. Like other thematics, it's a very focused area and you can get more volatility. So the likes of the Ukraine invasion and the underlying issues involved with that will impact this more than you would see a broad-based ETF. That said, it is working to the benefit. It's obviously people are now more focused and governments are now more focused on like, geez, we don't want to be reliant on this oil. We don't want to rely on this gas. We want our own production. How can we do that? So from that perspective, long-term, it will have a bigger impact. Short-term, volatility. So what is the time frame that you're looking at for this ETF for someone five, to have in their portfolio? Five, minimum five years. Minimum five years. And if you look at the five-year return, it's been excellent. If you look at the last year and a half, it has been extraordinarily volatile. And hence, you really want to play it for the long game, not investing for a short-term play that, you know, something's going to happen in Ukraine, which will impact the price. So, Jamie, how can listeners find out more if they're interested in these ETFs? Um, quite simply, it's on our website is the easiest way, which would be vanek.com.au. Clean Energy is trading on the ASX under code CLNE. And our esports and gaming is trading under the code ESPO, ESPO for esports. So you can see them either online through your broker and obviously you can get more details on our website. Beautiful. Thank you so much. No problems at all. Jamie, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Anna. I really appreciate the time. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend. It may help them and help us keep going with the show. Also, don't forget to rate us. ETFs for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not ETFs for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.